Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Abra Behrens. I'm the chef at Greener Farm and author of Roughage, A Practical Guide to Vegetables. Vegetables can be exciting, delicious, and the star of the plate. In the introduction of Roughage, Francis Lamb wrote, Yours is a smart way of cooking, a curious, thoughtful way of cooking, but most of all, a cooking of good spirit. What a lovely compliment. Yeah, I so I was lucky enough uh, to meet Francis my final year of college at the University of Michigan. Uh, there is a program at U of M called NELP, which is the New England Literature Program. And, uh, you know, a handful of students go and you study transcendentalism uh, while living in the place where it was written. And so I, and there's, it's a very immersive um, course. And so you're at this camp and you're cooking together and reading together and, and there's a physical rigor combined with it. Um, but the very first day that I arrived, uh, you know, well before I was ever a cook in any sort of real setting, I, of course, found my way into the kitchen of the camp and Francis was there uh, making something for, for dinner. And I just introduced myself and was like, what is that? And it was this like beautiful red stem with the kind of purple green leaves that chard can have sometimes. Um, and uh, I had never seen Swiss chard before. And uh, so he, I was like, what is that? And he just gave me a taste of it. And I distinctly remember saying something along the lines of like, oh, it's like if uh, celery and spinach had a baby. And then he was like, yeah, pretty much. Um, and I was like, okay, see ya. I got to go jump in the lake now. Because one of the things... Um, the very first day that you get to NELP, uh, spoiler alert for any future NELPers, is you have to do this swim test, uh, which is really like a preposterous situation because uh, it's like a it's one of their kind of made up challenges where you arrive in this camp in Maine um, and then are immediately like told you have to jump in this lake and do a swim test and you're it's it sort of mimics the discombobulation that you feel at being sort of plopped into this new environment and so that whole day just kind of felt like uh, a wonderland and I will always remember you know Francis just like calmly being in the kitchen and and feeding me so shard yeah. In 2009, you started Bare Knuckle Farm in Northport, Michigan, with your mm-hmm. friend Jess. At the end of your first year of farming, you were as poor as you'd ever been, but you were eating some of the best meals of your life. Describe this. You know, I'm sure anybody that started their own business can attest to the fact that, um, you know, without securing outside capital, you're really putting all of your own resources in, and that includes like time and money and uh, emotional energy, all that stuff. And so by the end of the season, um, it was kind of this uh, this really quiet time. I had taken a side job uh, just for some extra cash. And so I had a couple of weeks where I had committed to them um, before going back to Chicago because we were done with the farm for the season. And um, I was going to move back. I had always been based in Chicago and then would move up to Northport for six months and then you know farm all summer and then move back and to Chicago and cook in the winter. And, um, 
so yeah, I was just trying, I really like just didn't have any money. And so I, uh, we had some carrots that were still on the ground. We had planted these kale plants that had lived all summer, um, but then got super aphidy in the fall. So we had cut them down to the nubs, but all the energy that was stored in those deep roots were putting up these little tiny baby kale leaves every day. And um, we had some chickens that year, but they had moved uh, to my business partner's wife's farm uh for the winter and so but I still had some eggs left before they moved and um all those things so it was it it was really like quiet nights it was super cold in the cabin where I was living but the meals were so great and it was you know every night the carrots would get frosted over and so they would get sweeter and sweeter and um it was kind of there that I realized I was making all of these different meals and so it never felt redundant um even though it was the same primary ingredients and um for me it gets to a little bit of this conversation about the value of food versus the worth of food and how um you know those are really simple ingredients but the meals felt very like celebratory each night and maybe it's because you know they were the, the event of the day you know I was just kind of doing other sort of closing up the farm tasks during the day or like kind of puttering around or reading. So it felt like an, an activity and it was just so, it was such a nice time despite being on the outside, very, very underwhelming in terms of my financial time. I think all home cooks need to hear this. Ingredients can be repetitive, but meals need not be. In Ruffage, you have a hundred plus recipes and 230 plus variations. Talk about not being redundant. Again, it comes from seasonal eating in the northern Midwest. Uh, and the way that that sort of started for me was realizing there's a trajectory for the season that we go through every year, whether you're farming or just eating seasonally or just, you know, you have any sort of uh, connection to the outdoors in this this part of the country. And I think that's mirrored in other parts of the country as well. So it, the point is that, you know, every spring you get asparagus and it's, it's the same asparagus every year, uh, but the ways that you present it can change and feel very new. It's really about having sort of creativity with a slightly more limited palate. Give us some tips to change our thinking surrounding vegetables. In the book, you talk about equating decadent foods with sinfulness and vegetables with moral fortitude. And I know growing up in Kansas, I have a hard time changing my mind about vegetables. I think there's two ways to think about that. One, the the bit in the book about equating there's you know there's a false equivalency between um, rich foods and, and decadence and you know piousness with uh, with vegetables. I think part of that is we live in a culture that is a really full of shoulds right now. Um, like you should eat that, you shouldn't buy this. Um, that, you know, thing should give you heart disease or something like that. And I think that it's, it's a, that's a lot of noise. That's well-intentioned noise, but noise nonetheless. And so I think there's an element of um, people choosing to eat a salad when they really want fried chicken because they think it'll make them feel better. Um, And I would say that it depends on the situation. You know, like if you've been working outside all day, the reason fried chicken tastes better to you is because you are like have burned through those calories. But at the same time, if I've had rich meals, a salad actually makes me feel better. And so I think it's about being honest with yourself about 
what you really want in that moment and not feeling bad about your choices. Just make the best choices that you can and and kind of putting the shoulds on a shelf. The other point that you were talking about is, you know, changing your um, sort of perception of vegetables. Uh, I, you know, I think that the Midwest uh, still, for better or for worse, has sort of a meat, starch, veg plate. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people are still eating. Um, and I still cook that way. I still eat that way sometimes. And I think that the way that things changed for me with vegetables was by both recognizing what each one had to offer and then sort of letting go of that everything on one plate mindset um, and taking inspiration from other cuisines that have vegetables more at the forefront. So you have maybe instead of having three things on a plate and it feels like there's no star if there's not a meat-based protein or an egg-based protein or something like that, or even just like a really fancy vegetable, uh, you know, I think that you can kind of decentralize the the stars of the plate. So if you have three or, you know, really extravagantly five dishes, you're not doing any more work than you would do to have three things on a plate, but you're having three different textures. So, you know, you could have like a spinach salad with bacon and egg is a pretty classic spinach com- combination at least around here. And then some roasted veg, uh, like a big pile of roasted carrots with like a, you know, slick salsa verde or something like that over the top. And uh, I don't know what else would I put with that. Probably something really creamy like a squash puree or, you know, maybe in the summertime, like a creamless corn puree. And that gives you some like richness and, and those feelings to pair against the brightness of the greens. And I think that it's that interplay to me that has started to become more interesting than um, the excitement of a big piece of meat. But don't get me wrong, I still cook big pieces of meat. I still eat meat and I like it. But I think it's about kind of appreciating um, those different characteristics and what each ingredient is showing and letting it <laughs> letting it live its best life on your table. So this cookbook is so easy to navigate. Talk about how it's laid out. Yeah, it was really important to me uh, to write, to have Refuge organized uh, alphabetically. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that I really wanted it to be a reference book. Um, and I find it confusing in books when things are organized, um, like appetizers, main courses, sides, you know, soups, all those different things. Cause I don't, my brain just doesn't work that way. Um, and I wanted it to be a way for people to kind of invert the way that they think about a dish, which parallels the inversion that happened for me when I was cooking at bare knuckle, which is look at your ingredients and then find something that you want, like a recipe that you want to use to showcase those ingredients. And so if that means that you're going to a farmer's market and you're super excited about the kohlrabi that's there, then buy the kohlrabi and know that you have some resources at your back to, to turn that into something. Or if it means that like you're tight on money and that's, you know, asparagus is on sale in January and that's what's best for your family, buy that and know that you have the, these resources at your back. I wanted to kind of take the the sourcing issue out of it a little bit um, and then also make it easier for people to find the recipes to link back to those ingredients. The other reason I wanted to organize it alphabetically, I have a ton of respect for books that are organized seasonally, but I also remember the very first time I was reading, I think it was um, Animal Vegetable miracle which is a great a great book but uh barbara king was talking about having asparagus 
in, you know, early April or late March or something. And I remember being like, well, good for you. (laughs) We don't get asparagus until June in Northern Michigan. And, you know, May, if we're lucky in, you know, Chicago and and Southern Michigan. Um, And so I didn't want anyone to feel left out. And that, I think a lot of people think about the Midwest in terms of our winters. And and people say like, oh, you can't eat locally in the winter. And, And that is not really the case anymore. But in addition, you know, I was just visiting some friends in Florida and right now, which is, you know, mid-April, it's the height of their tomato and strawberry season. And they were talking about their frustration that when uh, all of the tomato recipes come out in the food magazines, their tomato season is over, you know, because that like by the middle of summer, they have okra and peppers and eggplant and that's it and fresh greens are gone you know even corn isn't really there their winter squash season is like I can't remember now exactly but I I think it's like in May or something you know so it's it's a funny thing seasonality because it doesn't account for the region and so while this book is midwestern based because I am I didn't want it to be midwestern exclusive and um, I wanted to be sure that people you know in Florida or Arizona or the UK or, you know, Montreal could all find, find use in it. One of the best things about this cookbook is that you can either swap ingredients in and out from the base recipe, or you can evolve the original recipe into a totally new meal. For example, um, let's say a big squash. What are some variations on a big old squash? So when I was thinking about the variations, I wanted to, sh- to really showcase kind of two primary uh, branches of how to vary it. One is if you take the ingredient and prepare it the same way and then just swap out the flavor accessories, uh, it's, it presents like a very different dish. So for me, the beet factor really represents that the best where um, you've got steam roasted beets and the recipe is for a salad with smoked white fish and uh, sour cream and sunflower seeds. And it's a very like classic Eastern European. And then the variations are you take the same steam roasted beets and put them with oranges and feta and uh, some mint. And that makes it a very different, takes it to a very different place. Or you could put it in a very Midwestern fall dish with apples and cheddar and walnuts and parsley. And so those dishes present very differently, even though the structure is the same. And then the other way to look at that is um, how to use the same thing and make totally different meals with it. And so the beet puree or the squash puree that we were mentioning, you know, you're making this base of a puree and then the recipe for that will be one thing. Like for the beets, it's uh, you take pasta and dress it in the beet puree. It makes this beautiful, bright red uh, beet pasta with pickled raisins and poppy seeds. Again, very Eastern European. Or you can take that same puree and blend it with white beans and a little bit of olive oil and then make it like a beet hummus and put it with a crudite platter, like a veggie platter. 
Or you could take that and cook risotto and then bind the risotto with it and makes this beautiful pink risotto that is really lovely. I can't remember what the toppings are for that, but if I were making it today, I would put, you know, walnut oil and some Parmesan and maybe a little bit of orange because beet and walnut and orange go really well together. Um, or you could thin it down and make a soup with it, you know, and make kind of a play on borscht um, or all of those things. And the same is true for squash. The same is true for, um, you know, any of the, like, the celery root puree, the cauliflower puree, all of those things. And, and so it's kind of, it's a little bit of a deeper dive into batch cooking, like large batch cook, cooking, which, um, I, you know, I think everybody's done the thing where they make, you know, a gallon of lentil soup. And by the end of the week, they're like, if I have to eat lentil soup one more time, I'm like going to cry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so wanting to say like, you know, you can dial that back a little bit, um, and make it less specific of a prep and then have more options. So maybe instead of making the gallon of lentil soup, you can cook up, you know, four quarts of lentils and then have those. And then you can make a soup with some of the lentils or you can add them to a salad or you could, you know, whatever else uh, you would do with lentils, you know, crisp them up in the oven to make like crispy lentils for snacking, um, all those things. So that was kind of the point of the variation. Let's talk about the word glug, G-L-U-G. This shows up quite a bit in the cookbook. Talk about the word glug. <laughs> well, it's, it's a little bit of a funny thing because um, my first interaction with the word glug was my mom cooking from my grandmother's recipes and being so irritated by the word glug. And it was literally the a glug is you know when you pour often it was like a glug of milk in a batter and so a glug was like how long it took to like tip the gallon of milk and have it literally go whoop <laughs> of the amount <laughs> before it would hit the top and like you know stop whatever so my mom it made her crazy because she's a very scientific person um uh, and so she like measured out. She's like, if you have a full gallon of milk, a glug is much smaller. If you have a very empty glug of milk, it's, you know, it's much larger because it takes more time for it to like hit the top of the container or whatever. Um, so for her, it was like a quarter cup. That's what she would translate it to. And so in some ways I wanted to return to that phrase, mostly to indicate that a lot of times measurements don't have to be super exact. Like this is not, I think that there are certain realms of the cooking and baking world where you you do need to have very strict proportions and all of the recipes in refuge are very, very flexible in that way. Um, and trying to, the, the glug is sort of representative of that saying like, you're just trying to get some oil in the pan. Yeah. So that's where glug comes from. And <laughs> it's, it's a, it's been amazing to see how some people find it very liberating and some people find it, uh, moderately infuriating and, Maybe that's maybe that's how things should be. <laughs> I love it. I found it liberating. I used it on my Instagram story on Saturday when I was making your peas. Nice. <laughs> yeah, how'd the peas come out by the way? Oh my gosh. Are they, okay? they were amazing. Okay, so I made oh. your recipe for peas with parsley, thyme, butter, and onions on page three nineteen. And they came out so sweet and the butter gave kind of like a hint of saltiness and creaminess and the herbs. And um, I had it again last night for dinner. It's, I mean, as a side dish for dinner. It's so good. I'm so glad because that recipe, you know, one of the funny things about the book is there's a handful of recipes that are um, 
that seemed very, very simple. Uh, and I was like, are these too simple to go into no, a cookbook? It's really good. But you don't like peas, do you? Oh, yeah. I, I know. I don't really like peas. Um, and it's funny, Francis told me that his first draft of the foreword for the book was uh, simply about like berating me for not liking peas. <laughs> and then he decided to go a different direction, thankfully. I feel like everyone loves them. They sort of infuriate me because it's really difficult to know when they're ripe because each variety shows differently and they'll present differently on the plant. And so you'll have like from the same plant, one that is perfectly ripe and then also one that's underripe and one that's overripe and they all look exactly the same. And then you pick them and there's such a short time period for when the sugars that are in the pea start to convert to starch. And so like you basically have to pick them in the morning before market, which when your market starts at 8 a.m. means you have a very early day or you have to pick them in the afternoon and then get them into cold store. It's just this, like I find them to be a very fickle plant. I love pea shoots and I really love frozen peas because that I think is one of those times where the industrial model, especially the organic industrial model can work to our benefit where they're being harvested. They're probably, you know, all harvested at the appropriate time of ripeness. They're immediately flash frozen. They're super reliable. They're really dependable, all of those things. And so, yeah, I know, I mean, peas, everyone, like, I want someone to teach me how to like them more, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> those darn peas. <laughs> What's your favorite vegetable? Uh, cabbage, I think, is... Um, far and away. And again, that's, again, a reliance on the the sort of everyday hardworking vegetable in my kitchen, as opposed to some of the shishir darlings, uh, you know, that are only around for a little bit of the time. Uh, I mean, I love tomatoes and I love sweet corn and um, and all of those things, but, but cabbage is the vegetable that is in my fridge 90% of the time and make such different meals. Uh, you know, I, I really rely on purple cabbage in the winter to be eating something that's colorful. Um, I really love making um, like a version of gawamki, which are like the Polish cabbage rolls that we didn't do. Uh, unfortunately, I trimmed a bunch out of that cabbage chapter just because it, the book was is long enough as it is. Um, and so some of those like slower cooked cabbage recipes or the cabbage rolls and stuff like that didn't quite fit into uh, the structure of the book in that at that point, but yeah, I just I, she's such a versatile friend, and I I rely on cabbage a lot, so that makes her my favorite. I love cabbage too, but here's my problem with cabbage. I live in New York City, and I don't have the largest refrigerator, and mm. cabbage always takes up so much room. It kind of, you know, greatest strength, greatest weakness, that there's so much food in those heads of cabbage, but then greatest weakness, there's so much food in those heads of cabbage, <laughs> and it yes. takes up a lot of space, but <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, cabbage does hold up if you cut it uh, and then store it in a in a plastic bag or something, Um eventually it'll start to brown on the cut side. So I generally leave it whole and just cut a little wedge off when I need it. But yeah, it, it can be a big, a big beast. So now to my segment called my last meal, what would you order for your last supper? Oh, wow. Peas? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> one, one last shot. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, in terms of the last meal that is the most representative of my life, I uh, would probably be some sort of like weird salad uh, that I tend to make when it's just me home for dinner and uh, I eat it like straight out of the mixing bowl that I find a lot of comfort in. And that would be something like, you know, Swiss chard that has some like warm uh, green lentils over the top and then like shaved cauliflower and roasted beets and, um, you know, maybe some some tuna mayo with that or something like that, like something just that's really representative of, of the food that I really truly enjoy and rely on on a daily basis. But if it's like a celebratory last meal, probably fresh pasta, uh, you know, like a fresh pasta with maybe like a million different types of fresh pasta, like a filled pasta, a hand cut noodle with a really nice ragu and slow cooked sauce. I mean, we were just, I was just got the chance to eat at Missy, Missy Robbins restaurant. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the pastas were so, so delicious. And I've, I've been really fixated lately on these daily luxuries, these things that, you know, like we were talking about being pretty, like living on a pretty tight budget uh, means that I have kind of turned to find uh, luxury in some of these more simple things. And a really beautiful plate of pasta is, is, is certainly one of those. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Everything is at Aberbarrens, uh, which is A-B-R-A-B-E-R-E-N-S. Um, the, my website has the most up-to-date information in terms of uh, book events and the dinners that we're doing at Greener and information about the cookbook and then social media. I don't really use Twitter that much, uh, but I'm there, I guess. And then Instagram is like my preferred platform. Speaking of book events, I'm so excited for our live cookbook chat at Lizzie Young Bookseller in Brooklyn on Thursday, May 2nd from 6 to 8 p.m. I can't wait. Oh, it's going to be so fun. Yes, and you can find all the details on my Instagram. And thanks, Abra, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It truly it means a ton that you've enjoyed the book, and, and I hope that your listeners will, too. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at Cookery by the Book and subscribe at cookerybythebook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book Podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.